Like I start off by portion of the show By giving you a taste of a little something we call Rock and roll 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 All right Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast Quiet Billy my name is Don DiMuccio, and I make this pledge to you. There will be no talk of red states, blue states, hanging chads, making America 1930 again. Nothing but rock and roll and all that it entails. And speaking of, later in the extravaganza, we have the legendary singer and keyboard player for the Rascals, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Felix Cavallari. But first, I want to welcome my co-host for today, a man who currently plays bass guitar in three separate bands, which is too, too many for me has been a radio broadcaster in New England for over 27 years and served for seven years as entertainment chairman for the Fall River Celebrates America Festival, which is how I came to make his acquaintance all those years ago. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Mike Moran. Thank you, John. Good morning, Mike. Hello there. I want to say hello to your incredibly sizable and growing audience. My mom thanks you. (laughs) She's the only one that doesn't speak very highly of you. Well, it's been my experience. But, uh, we have issues. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, don't we all? How are you? Good. Hanging in I there. Love, I've been enjoying the podcast. I've been very entertained and enlightened by your guests and your, your knowledge of music, which I kind of ha- have had an, an inkling of, um, but uh, reinforced even more so, uh, having heard long-form conversations with you and uh, hopefully participating in one today. Well, thank you. I actually don't care for your work, but thank you, thank you for the nice things you said about me. <laughs> I, I, That's no. what it's all. It's better to give than to receive. Exactly right. right. <laughs> now, actually, I've known Mike, what, almost two decades? Going yeah, on? probably, yeah. We, we connect from time to time. Yeah. Then we go to our neutral corners for a period of exactly time. Exactly right. But yes, you are one of the few, and I told you this off the air, one of the few people who, when you booked my band, Black and White, we could always count yeah, on you yeah. to be straight, straightforward. If you said this is what we expect of you, and this is what you should expect of me, <laughs> it all happened just the way you planned it. And I think... Uh, we have ways to make you cooperate. Exactly right. And you did a great job at that festival. That was yeah. a lot of fun. And for people who don't know what it was, um, the Fall River Chamber of Commerce many years ago said, let's do a festival and our great waterfront that is going to sort of be um, a shot of self-esteem for the community. Mm. Let's have it be all volunteer driven and let's do food, music, parade, fireworks. Um, out on the Taunton River, they did tall ships. They did um, a lot of other things that were designed to just bring the community together and have a good time for a weekend. It got bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. The budgets got bigger. The corporate donations became greater so that the level of professionalism grew over the years. And we were able to, I was always involved in the, the musical end of it and got to work with a promoter to uh, bring in some, over the years, some great national acts. And uh, it turned in, we always had um, a whole lineup of entertainers, as you know, um, the best of the local scene and the regional scene and black and white became a fixture at Fall River Celebrates America for a number of years. How many, how many times? I was just thinking that if you did it for seven years, I easily five. Yeah. Easily. I think there were two years we couldn't make it work for scheduling purposes. Yeah. 
but one of the, one of the best mismatches of all time a blues band black and white opening up for taylor dane yeah you know what I had a blast she well, was she was super nice the audience responded well. It was, and that's I like that too because that's like the old school how Bill Graham used to do things. He wouldn't follow a heavy metal band with a heavy metal band. He would have BB King opening up for Led Zeppelin. Well, well, let me tell you two unusual concerts that I attended over the years sure. that were just as you describe, kind of mismatched, but somehow managed to work, and they both involved the Mahavishnu Orchestra. John McLaughlin. Uh, yeah. And um, one was uh, Mahavishnu opening for the James Cotton Blues Band. Wow. Re really Culture, odd. Different cultures for sure. The, the other was a theater show at one of the theaters in Providence, either, either PPAC or Lowe's or whatever it was, the Veterans, whatever it was called at the time. And Mahavishnu headlined, and the opening act was Mata Hoople. Again, go figure. Clash of cultures, right there, audience-wise. Yeah. But that's how he. But you see, look at a guy like Willie Nelson. Now, Willie Nelson is a now a legend, but it wasn't always that way. Um, sure. And especially in the late '60s, but he was, got exposed to an entire different generation through guys like Bill Graham, um, who would put him on before you know warming up for the Who or something. Exactly. And and the audience didn't walk out. And people had an open mind, and I think that's why people like BB King and like. Willie Nelson and and uh, Waylon Jennings and all this, they would open up for rock bands and the audiences would would love it and they were exposing themselves not just staying in the country vein which was pretty close minded back then anyways I think now it's a lot more sure. pop oriented but yeah, then if you weren't Tammy Wynette they weren't that interested yeah it was sort of like the the country purist um, and and let me tell you uh, my to the degree that I have any admiration for country music, it's because of George Jones and Waylon Jennings sure. and Willie. Things that are in the more classic, it, not the the jeans, t-shirt, and cowboy hat guys who, many of them are very talented. Brad Paisley is an incredible guitar player. Vince Gill is an amazing singer and guitar player. Um, you know, but, but there's a lot of interchangeable parts, it seems, in the country scene, for me, for mm. my personal taste. Yeah. But there you are. So when, when we did Fall River Celebrates America over the years, and you were involved, as you mentioned, in a lot of them, we had, I remember taking a picture of you with Dewey and Jerry from America. That's right. Uh, we had America. We had Dave Mason. We had Los Lobos. And we also had Eddie Money. We had Mark Farner from Grand Funk. We did Peter Noon. We did Gary Puckett. Eric Burden. Uh, Eric Burden and the Animals, mm -hmm. or the reconstituted 1990s Animals, or two, early 2000s Animals. We had Christopher Cross. Uh, we did some good shows, and, and it was great because it was all, I mean, we had a professional stage and lighting and sound, but everything else was volunteers because it was put on by the Chamber of Commerce, Chamber members. It'd be like a guy that has a limousine company. All right, he provided the ground transportation, picked up the artists at the, uh, those who didn't arrive by tour bus, picked them up at the airport, delivered them to the hotels, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it was the same with the food and every aspect of, of the festival, and, but it got so big that um, there was a, you know, every the pendulum swung in the other direction and they said, let's make it smaller. And then it kind of went away, which is too bad because I, I miss it terribly. And it gave me a chance to meet guys like you. Any chance of a resurrection? Well, the Chamber of Commerce has been asked that, and they flatly say no. Whether some other entity will fill the breach, you know, yeah. I, I guess remains to be seen. But um, I don't see it happening. That's un soon. It's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. It's always well attended.
without mentioning any names of any artist, any nightmare scenarios that, that you recall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, do tell. I, I, I can't mention the artist. Oh, go ahead. Mention the artist. Well, and it really wasn't their fault. There was, uh, we had the Turtles one year. and Flo and Eddie. They were, Flo and Eddie. They were great. Um, but it had rained during the day. And it was still threatening to rain when they went on stage. And they were, they were concerned about safety. And um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the volunteers from the festival committee decided that he would go into their dressing room and give them a pep talk about how the show <laughs> must go on. And um, Mark Volman didn't appreciate it and basically chased him out of the dressing room. I uh, love it. But other than that, I love everything it. Always, always went smoothly. Uh, you know, we did have some weather issues from time to time. We ended up having to do a double bill the next night because we had rain showers on a on a Friday, so we doubled up the entertainment on a Saturday. The mm-hmm. artists were flexible. They were able to do that. And that was the first time that I met Felix was uh, during that era, probably around 2002. Mm-hmm. And we've stayed in contact from time to time over the years. Did he do uh, the festival? He did. Oh. Uh, he did with Felix Cavalieri's Rascals. Great, great band. Terrific session musicians and performing musicians, including the bass player Mark Prentice, who went on to be the musical director for the big reunion that took place right. in 2012 and 13. Uh, was that the theater? Uh, yeah, it yeah. was uh, Once Upon a Dream That's it. Yep. Was, was the name of the tour, and it was produced by Stephen Van Zandt of Bruce Springsteen's band, who was a lifelong fan of the Rascals. Uh, the Rascals was the very first band I ever saw in December of 1967 at a CYO gymnasium in Fall River, and the very first concert, and I did change my life as everyone says about their first concert <laughs> absolutely you know. uh yeah two things strike me about that one my god you're old and two <laughs> a seat was a cyo gymnasium yeah. i mean and this is something that i've always asked people i remember every detail oh please all right night. great what was the sound systems like back then because in 67 you know they didn't have the big touring rigs that we right. came to know you know, there was a stack of speakers on either side of the stage. There were no monitors. Um, there were a lot of microphones. Uh, the drums were mic'd and uh, the congas were mic'd. Um, but it was kind of bare bones, certainly compared to anything that you would see now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet these guys were um, like the, so many bands in their time. They, first of all, they were on their way up. Uh, they hadn't done the Ed Sullivan show yet. Um, I don't know if their second album collections had been released, which had a bunch of great songs. Um, but they were they were incredibly energetic. Uh, you know, it was a blinding sideways wind-driven snowstorm outside. Mm-hmm. It was in December, and um, they just uh, took over this 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 little gym with probably two hundred folding chairs or two hundred and fifty folding chairs in it, and. Uh, and they were performing as though they were at the Hollywood Bowl. Was it just them, or were there other bands? There was on? an there was an opening act. I remember the name of the band. It was called Ill Wind. I think they came from the Boston area. Mm-hmm. Um, they played a thirty minute set, and people yawned. Um, they were kind of um, approaching sort of psychedelic rock. They were okay, um, but they were a local opener. Yeah, like, uh, you know. And then the Rascals came on and blew the roof off the place.
Our guest today was the soulful voice behind one of the most omnipresent rock bands of the 1960s, The Rascals. His unmatched skills behind the Hammond organ, coupled with his propensity for writing hit after hit, including number ones like Groovin' and my personal favorite, People Got to Be Free, deems this rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee a true living legend. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Felix Cavallari. Good morning, Felix. How are you, Dad? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. We also have our buddy Mike Moran. All right, Hello, Mike. Felix. It's great to touch base with you again. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, I thought of it this way. If you could survive the Gilbert Gottfried podcast, <laughs> you this, could do anything. This will be a this is going to be a this is going to be a tiptoe through the tulips for you, Felix. Well, we had we had a really good time. We had a really good time. That was fun. Yeah, it's nice to talk to crazy people. I like that. <laughs> well, speaking of crazy, this whole COVID nineteen thing—it's affecting uh, musicians and artists pretty hard. How have you been coping with all this? Well, you know, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, as far as live performances, which. You know, I miss it so much. Most of the people who are my peers, you know, even like Ringo and people like that, we love to perform live. There's nothing like, you know, getting the adulation and the warmth and the respect from the crowd. It's much better than staying home, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. you know? And uh, we really miss it. You know, I, I, it's really something else. On the other hand, thanks to the technology, such as what we're doing right now, uh, I've been able to finish up an album that I've been working on for uh, you know a few months prior to this whole thing happening. Mm-hmm. And because of the computer technology, we're able to do a lot of it and transfer it back and forth, you know, through uh, emails and uh, Dropbox things like that. And so I'm I'm just about done with it. And you release date on that? Well, that's another question. See, you know, what's the point? You know, we have we have to figure out our marketing. A whole new world now, you know, for us. Uh, what do we do? I mean, I usually sell it live at the shows. Yep. You know, uh, I- I'm not sure. You know, like I have to rely on on people who are much better at that than I am. You know. Obviously, you're uh, born in New York, but now you're resettled to Nashville. So, how has that yes. changed the dynamics of what you do? Well, I don't fool anybody with my accent. They know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they know exactly where I come from, you know? Yeah. Uh, Nashville is, is a really interesting place. It's really interesting. The musicianship down here, uh, you know, it, it's amazing because a lot of people from the West Coast have migrated here. And a lot of people from the East Coast have migrated here. So we've got a tremendous, wonderful group of talented people down here. Number two, the, the symphony, which I had the pleasure of playing with a year and a half wow. ago, is one of the best in the country now. I got to know the conductor. He told me for every seat, and there's approximately 75 chairs, there's 400 applicants trying to get to this city. Each instrument. Wow. So it's a great place for musicians to A, work, two, live, three, create. And that's what I like about it down here. However, a good Italian meal, I got to come see you guys. (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) Hey. Felix, Don can take you up to Federal Hill in uh, Providence. And, um, oh, yeah. Like you know, I, 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 I know that area very well because, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I used to go there. Uh, I used to go there. What is it? Uh, I, can't, I can't remember that really good restaurant up there. That I, I, The name escapes me. The old yes, canteen? I know. Oh, you've got some great food up there. Oh, yeah. That I know. That I know. No Italian bread down there. Not a decent loaf, right? It's a different world. Yeah, I know. You know? And, I and know. it's getting better. It's getting better. You know, it's good. getting better. But, you know, you, How you are the wanna... tomatoes? How are the tomatoes, Philly? <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of tomatoes are we talking about? Oh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Uh, it's, it's good down here. Like I say, it, 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 if, if I have a complaint 
uh, it's it's primarily because it's become so popular now yeah. that it's it's really overcrowded, which is a shame. Kind of like Austin, you know, everyone goes down Absolutely. there. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's just too too much. Right, right. Felix, I, w- I want to ask you about something about the early days. Having seen the original four of you right. in December of nineteen sixty-seven, it was a blinding snowstorm. It was at a CYO gymnasium in Fall oh, River, wow. Massachusetts, and. That? I will tell you that by the time you guys left the stage, the temperature in the building was probably 97 degrees because you guys had such energy. And and, And I point that out because I want you to give us a flavor of what it was like to work at a place like The Barge in Long Island where you guys really crafted your your style. Um, because those performances are legendary. Well, you know, that was really where we were discovered. You know, uh, you know. just a, a quick aside. If you saw the Broadway show that we did, Once Upon a Dream, yes, you, you heard the story about me, uh, you know, right from college, pretty much getting transferred to uh, Europe to work with Joey D and the Starliners. Oh, in Germany, and, right? In Germany. Yeah. And while I was over there, I happened to see... Before they came to the United States, the Beatles mm. they opened up. They opened up for Joey uh, <laughs> in, in two two places, or two or three so places. So cool. Yeah, it was really very interesting. Now, of course, I had never heard anything like this, and uh, I was at the precipice now between deciding: okay, am I going to go back to college? Am I going to pursue, you know, my medicine career, which is what my family was trying? You know, obviously they were all involved in that. Or am I going to even think about? This crazy business. Well, what happened when I saw them is I saw what I really looked as as a singing group. I mean, they were really, I like their singing. They're playing, because primarily I was a musician more than a singer, especially at that time. Uh, it was okay, you know. Mm. So I said, hmm, first of all, it looks like they're having a great time. I mean, you could see the adulation and the, it was like unbelievable. Number two, I said, you know, I could do this. I could really do this. But I had a plan. I'm going to try to find the best guys that play and the best guys that can sing that I can find. And let me try it. So that's what I did. Now, basically, I, I when I got back to the United States, I had some time to kill because of the wonderful United States government and the draft and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I won't bore you with, but boy, did they, they were really not interested in me. Let me tell you. <laughs> they said, hey, if, if we get nuclear, we'll call you. Other than that, stay home. You know, so where were you stationed, Felix? I was, no, I, I never got. They never. They didn't want me. No. They didn't want oh, me. they didn't. They said thanks, but check. They please. said th- okay. th- thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so we, we we could use guys a little taller. Yeah. I think that's what it was. So anyway, in those days, they were a little bit more you know particular than they became when they you know they, when they started to yeah. realize <laughs> what was going on. But that's another story that we'll save for my book, which by the way <laughs> is coming out eventually. We'll see. But anyway, so what happened is I put four guys together, three guys and myself, that were essentially like leaders of their bands. They were like the guy that you looked at when you went to see that group. Each of us had, you know, Eddie Eddie was an exception because Eddie was kind of young, but he still, he was a dynamic entertainer, Mm. great singer, great front guy, crazy son of a gun. So when we hit the stage, you have it absolutely right. The energy was unbelievable. And uh, yeah. I, we are at that. The barge was, as you well know, was on the Hamptons, which is like a big, big, big place for the Hoi Polloi and all right. the people. Like a resort. Bar- well, no, it's more like a summer haven for the wealthy. Oh, you know? wow. Uh, it is. It's it's really, and still <laughs> is, very uh, 
you know, like for example, we would have like Betty Davis come to the to the club, you know, oh, wow. and, and all kinds of like business execs and you know high rollers because it was in the Hamptons, you know. I knew we were going to be discovered there because all the all the record people go there, all the newspaper people go there, all all, all of the people who can you know afford to go away to that place for the summer. So, long story short, it was a blast. Was that where Sid Bernstein comes into the picture? Absolutely. What happened is this very wealthy uh, 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 man, uh, 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 what was Walter Hyman was his name. He was a textile uh, manufacturer. Uh, he saw us there, called up his music uh, connection, which was Sid, brought him right out to uh, uh, Long, uh, Long Island, to the Hamptons. He signed us almost that night, I mean, he just said, "Yeah, we can do something with these guys," and, and it started our whole our whole career. Uh, up to then, I was kind of running the band out of a book, you know, uh, to try to you know I knew, I knew nothing. I mean, you know, basically a, a book called "This Business of Music," which has contracts in it, mm, you know, sure. advice for all the uh, it's got it shows you what what to do if you can figure it out. But anyway, and 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 then immediately uh, we started auditioning for record companies and got our deal. Funny, because I was going to ask you, where does a young man get the the intuity to actually know you wanted to produce yourself, you knew you wanted artistic control? There were so many yeah. guys back then who just signed in their lives away, you, yet you seem to have uh, an edge on a lot of them because you actually turned down Phil Spector. Tell, talk about that. Yeah, which, which was pretty hard because I, I, I adored his work, you know? I mean, I was... Well, you know, the, 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 the interesting thing is that when when... when Rock and roll came to New York. Uh, Alan Free brought it from Cleveland. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a young guy. So I heard everything from the beginning, you know, of what we now know as uh, pop music. I mean, the pop music changed drastically, you know, right, right around that time in the 50s. Well, I noticed uh, besides keyboard players like, you know, who inspired me like Ray Charles and Fats Domino and Jerry Lee Lewis and singers who inspired me like almost everybody, you know, from the Flamingos to the Penguins to the, you know, the Heartbeats to Marvin Gaye. But I also noticed this thing called production. And it was done uh, on, on a song that uh, Barry Gordy produced called Money, you know. Barrett and Strong was, song, yeah. Exactly. And I said, ah, production. What is production? Well, what is production is I'm going to put together a song. Well, I'm a classically trained musician. So I, I said, these songs, with all due respect, they're pretty simple. You know what I mean? I mean, compared to like, you know, Beethoven, this is cake, you know? Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, okay. Well, I had an idea basically with the group sonically for sound. It was based around an organ, you know? Uh, basically an organ being the bass, being the rhythm, and being, if you need it, a lead, you know, and voices, as I say, and good musicians. I said, well, hell, man, I could do this. Sure. I mean, I, I and, and not only that, but I knew that if we went with Phil, we weren't going to be the Rascals. We weren't going to be the Felix. We were, right. we were going to be the Phil's because Phil's sound, <laughs> right. Phil's sound was totally encompassed you know everything it was phenomenal sound not not that he couldn't have brought in a lot of great musicians in the wrecking crew and so forth but Absolutely. that 
I don't want to think of the rascals in those terms as much as I respect all the, you know, right. Tommy Tedesco and Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell and, and Hal Blaine and Hal all Blaine. those guys. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't want them to have taken your product and made it their way. I love what they've done with the th- with the people that they've done it with, but I want to hear Gene, uh, Dino, I was Eddie, say, and Felix. Hal Blaine's great, but Dino Danelli, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> he's not. He's no. not so and, dusty. And, 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 and that was the whole point. You, you you got it right in a nutshell. Because I, in those days, the the so called A and R department. You know, producers really hadn't really become like as powerful as they are now, which is now they're as a, if not more important than artists because they create the entire product now. But in those days, they were staff people. Right. You know, they, they worked on there and they pretty much did what they was told, which was make hits or you're fired, which is pretty much what it was. You know, no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> I'm serious, and no money. I might add, you know, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you know. But anyway, that that was the reason, and you you got it because I I I said, look, you know, and I had arguments with my band about this because they thought I was, you know, I had lost my mind, you know, and and, and I said, no, man, you don't understand. These people are coming to hear it because they like what they hear, okay. So why not let's just put together what we hear so that you know people can uh, uh, appreciate. It, sure. You know, excuse my phone here. No, I'm that's sorry. okay. That's the phone line I thought you guys were going to be on. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't end up with a half-bad producer with Arif Mardin on well, Atlantic, right? That's where the good luck came in because, yeah, we were the producers. I mean, seriously, that the contract, everything stated that we were producers. But they put these two gentlemen in the room. Two of them, both, unfortunately, they're both passed. Both of them, and I don't use the word loosely. I use it with a capital G. Geniuses. Really? Mm. Yeah. Tommy Dowd, oh, um, fantastic! <laughs> yeah, was our engineer. Wow! <laughs> so start there, okay. And second of all, was this gentleman from Turkey by the name of Arif Mardin, who I miss so much. He, he was like our George Martin. Sure. And basically, what you do with a person like that is, besides tremendous respect, you bring your ideas in and you lay them out, you know. And he basically contributes like to it. Especially like, for example, in the arranging process, you know, and I stopped my musical education at that time before I got to where I could, you know, uh, write strings and horns. I could write the parts, but I couldn't orchestrate it. You know what I'm saying? Well, he could, see? Mm -hmm. And, and, And so he brought that to the room as well as this charming, wonderful personality. Because one thing I got to say about Atlantic Records, and, you know, it's interesting because... You know, there's all this kind of stuff about how, you know, we get ripped off and all that kind of stuff. They wanted to make great music from day one, that company. And that was quite evident from the first day I walked in there. Mm -hmm. Felix, can I, bouncing off of what you've just described, that studio experience, I've always wanted to talk to you about this. Um, and it's not one of your vocals, but the song is one of the. How can I be sure is the song that makes me stop dead in my tracks whenever I hear it? Mm-hmm. Whatever I'm doing, I stop and I will listen to it to the end. Don and I were talking about this when we were kind of conferencing about what to talk about in today's podcast. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to ask Felix, how did in the pop music scene as it was in the mid to late 60s, how did it come to be? that this incredible record and this incredible song would be released and recorded and, most importantly, arranged the way it is, where the instruments that catch your ear 
Well, my ear as a listener are an accordion and an Correct. upright bass. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Very good. I'm thinking, hey, where's midnight hour? Yeah. Hey, where's slow down? Right. Hey, where's, where's too many fish in the sea? And this unique, incredible... And, it, you know, if, allow me to say that it reminds me of when the Beatles said... We're, we're a studio band. We're going to do things that are more experimental in the studio, and we're not going to worry about what's going to be a hit, but we're going to do the music that we want to create, and it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the stage of it. But tell me a little bit about that process and who actually played. Well, the, we were the players except for the bass, and, and we actually cut that twice uh, in terms of bass. Wow. Uh, I believe, if I, I've got to really check with this one, but I think Richard Davis was the upright. Oh, my bass. goodness. Oh, my goodness. You know, Richard, yes. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the beauty of recording in New York City is you've got the, you know, the Philharmonic there, you know, the, the, the you've got some really astounding musicians, yeah. outstanding at your disposal who are very happy to come over and play. Richard you know? did a uh, Richard did an album with Elvin Jones in the late '60s called Heavy Sounds, and I wore it out. Absolutely, um, he's one of my favorite upright bass players. And now you're telling me that may have been him. Oh, yeah. How can I be sure? You've oh, blown yeah. my mind yet again, Mr. <laughs> well, you know, Arif would bring these guys in, these gentlemen in, and you know, like you know, like uh, you're saying, like, oh my God, you know, I mean, the talent, and not only that, an absolute gentleman from head to toe. I mean, what a doll. You know, I remember one time he brought Ron Carter in. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he brought Ron Carter. I was doing this song. It was like a jazz song called Nubia and stuff like that. Something oh, like sure, that. sure. And and I, I couldn't play. I'm looking over. I said, oh, my God, you know who that's standing for? That's Ron Carter. <laughs> 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 and he said, he says, uh, he says, little brother, he says, man, either you stop playing or we're going to be here all night. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, long story short, very simple answer to your question. Okay, Michelle. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I get it. Let me tell you something about the Beatles. Besides the fact that they were phenomenal songwriters, they opened all these doors for all of us. When a Beatle record came out, WABC and all the rest of them, they didn't say, well, I don't know if it fits our format. They had to play it. They played it, yeah. Now the door's open for how can I be sure? Is that how you looked at it? A lot of bands talk like that. You know, the Beatles would do something and they'd say, wow, the possibilities have expanded again. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And man, let me tell you something. That's the debt. One of the many debts that we owe those guys, besides the fact that they didn't stick to one formula, they jumped all around the spectrum of music and they had, as I say, George Martin to go anywhere they wanted to go. You want to go like, you know, like Latin, you want to, wherever you want to play, that man was capable of doing, well, so was Arif. Right. And so were the radio stations at that time. They were they they had to play. You had to play it. So without them, how can I be sure? I don't believe it would have ever happened. How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? How can I be sure where I stand with you? Fly! 
confuse me Touch me but don't take me down Whenever I Whenever I'm away from you My alibi Is telling people I don't care for you Maybe I'm just hanging around with my head up Upside down, it's a pity I can't seem to find someone who's as pretty and lovely as you How can I be sure? I really, really, really want to know I really, really, really want to know Originally, we, we played for 21 and over. That was the drinking age in those days. Yeah. And the clubs, which were pr- pr- primarily were in the you know metropolitan area, uh, tri-state area, the proprietors did not want original songs at all. They wanted covers. Sure. They wanted covers. So we were discouraged if we had any inclination to start writing, if you wanted to work. That's how I found Good Lovin'. You know, that's how I found Mustang Sally. These were songs that were like obscure on uh, radio stations that, you know, were not exactly, you know, like the top 40s. So I would literally go to the towns, uh, like in, in my case it was near a shell, go to the record store, buy the 45 to show the uh, club owner, this is not my song. And then we would arrange it, you see, in, in a way that uh, would, was, was rascals. When we went into the recording studio under contract and we recorded, we didn't have any songs yet. So they had to get them for us, you see. And that's sure. how they brought in sure. the, uh, those writers uh, from, I think they were Motown writers, uh, right. for uh, Ain't Gonna Eat Up My Heart Anymore and uh, Baby Let's Wait. Yeah. They wrote that. And then lightning struck with good love. Now the little guys in the studio are big stars. Right, right. There <laughs> yeah. you go. So guess what? Right. We're going to start writing our songs, damn it. And and I I also heard that there was a, that you basically were given an open door on studio time to Correct. the extent that even other artists were knocking on the door saying, you know, like Wilson Pickett is waiting outside wondering when is he going to get in the studio. Yeah, well he was. Is, is that an exaggeration or no. is that did that actually happen? No, he was really ticked. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> 
while wow. we lived there. I mean, we we we, we almost slept there. You know, oh, man. And it was just magic, man. You got a, an eight track studio, which there was only two in existence in those years, yeah. and that was the, and that was because of Tom Dowd and the and the staff and Les Paul. They had the only ones in the world, as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, even EMI was trailing behind the technology wise to what was going on in America and in Atlantic. Four tracks, yep, all that that's stuff it. came from you, which is shows you how talented these engineers were sure. these days. Felix, can I can I take it into another direction? I've always wanted to ask you about this. Um, because I I was counting last night in anticipation of today's conversation. Oh, cool. How many times have I seen Felix perform? You know, night, December of 67 with the original Rascals, and as recently as last October at the Narrow Center for the Arts in Fall River. And I counted up nine performances between yeah, Hippie Fest, between Hippie Fest, so the, the car that's out in your driveway, you're welcome. That's all I'm <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you. I but, appreciate but, that. But here's, here's the one that I never had a chance to talk to you about, and you're going you're gonna to remember it um, immediately. I think it might have been 95 with Ringo, and you're sharing the stage with Ringo, John Entwistle, Zach Starkey, who now plays drums for The Who, Don, as you know, mm -hmm. um, Billy Preston, did, did I mention him, uh, Randy Bachman, um, Mark, Farner. Mark Farner, Farner from Grand Funk Railroad, yeah. and you're out there every night, and I got to see that group <laughs> in a relatively small um, venue, which doesn't exist anymore, in the round. And I want you to please tell me that they were all wonderful people, because if you have any horror stories, then lie to me. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, like I say, I, I I got some lasting friendships from that uh, from that uh, show, that uh, kind of tour. Yeah, I, I had never met Mark, and Mark's a dear friend of mine. I'm Mark Farner, and you know, as far as like personalities, I mean, we we could not be further apart politically than that. You know, that's why I was wondering. <laughs> if, it's not you possible. Know. <laughs> But it just shows you, like in the in the old days, like you know, like people like uh, Tip O'Neill and 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 these people, they used to get along with one another. Yeah, you know? it wasn't like I'm going to kill you because you're <laughs> the other. I mean, what what is this crap? You know what I'm saying? I mean, seriously, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, it's a little difficult to understand where they're coming from today. Mm. But yeah, right. Yeah. And so we no, and, and number two, seriously, there was a lot of musical respect on that stage. Oh, there had to be. And uh, it was one of the reasons that, uh, you know, it worked. It was, uh, it was so interesting because, you know, John, rest his soul, that twistle. He had a lot of trouble with grooving, man. <laughs> really? Yeah, <laughs> he, because he, he couldn't swing. I feel like I'm, I'm tripping, you know. I feel like, yeah. I feel like he, it's not his thing, yeah. you know. But he played it, you know. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we, we had a lot a lot of problems with that. See, because Ringo, you know, he, he's really kind of like a guy that he's like, with all due respect, he's a big hand. <laughs> yeah, he, he just think? wants to play, man. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't Nobody need has more fun at a Ringo show no, than Ringo. Ringo. He doesn't need any money. Come on, this is ridiculous. You know, he's out there, and you got to pull him off the stage. You know, because yeah. he loves it. I really feel everybody on that stage had that same uh, kind of inkling. You know, personality-wise, you know, of course, some people, you know, get together. And, you know, poor Billy was really troubled, man. He was such a talented guy. I know. Yeah. What oh, a tragedy. Man, you hear that friggin' solo on, on, on the Beatles song, Get Back, and you got to go like, are you kidding me?
days, star power was not godlike. You know, I mean, like you're a musician, I'm a musician. Yeah, that's right. You know, and if I need a plumber, I'm going to call a plumber. He's the most important guy in my life. It's what you did. <laughs> you yeah, know? I get it. Yep. Sure. You know, I know, I know you're famous, but I need a plumber. Right, right, yeah, right. So yeah. uh, that's the attitude that was around in those days, especially at Atlantic Records. You know, the people who were walking the so-called halls of Atlantic Records, and I don't use this term lightly, they were giants. Yeah. They weren't just, I mean, Otis Redding, get out of here. I mean, are you kidding? Ray I mean, Charles, Aretha. Ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you, these, these people right. were not normal. But you didn't, get, yeah. you didn't get that. No. You didn't get that. I got 15 bodyguards in case you drop wine on me. Yeah. Which happened. It happened. <laughs> I just saw right in the Hall of Fame. I won't mention the guy's name. You know, we're, we're in, the, in the VIP room, and this, this, this artist has got three. I had a glass of wine in my hand. His bodyguard pushed me away like I'm going to spill it on the dude. Get out of here. Oh, my God. Man. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah and, and I'm going like, boy, we've come a long way. Yeah, but huh? Not, yeah. Not, not upwards. No, you know? no, no. I hear you. Well, I, everybody respected one another. Sure. And, and, and I mean, I, we had a little problem with some of the jazz guys because, you know, they looked at us. And I, and I understand. They, they, they play circles around us. You know, they make one-tenth of what we make. I understand right, that. Right. I get that. You know, but other than that, there were no signs in Atlantic Rangers do not enter recording. These son of a guns would walk in the room. Uh, I, I say Otis Redding, you know. Otis <laughs> would come to the studio. Serious, just true story. I've said this before, so if you've heard it, excuse me. And he opened the door and he looked and he go, my God, they are white. Close the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's you know, great. and man, let me tell you something. How I, how much I appreciated that camaraderie and that kind of like, just you're one of us, we're one of you. I mean, that was really, really cool. I don't know what it's all about, but I feel I'll soon find out. I'm sure never felt this secure. Nothing like I ever thought it would be Someone opened up a door for me A girl like you
time I'm holding you close to me Trouble's gone, it's gone I'm in ecstasy With a girl You know, a lot of our listeners are musicians, as am I. And one of the things that always intrigued me is when you guys did those appearances on Shindig or on Ed Sullivan. You know, oh, yeah. talk, like fr- from a musician's point of view, talk me through that. I know some of them were lip synced, some were live, but I don't see any monitors. Exactly. What was it like? Well, let me let me start off from a humorous point of view. When you went home, you didn't want to see your friends for a couple of days. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> you didn't sound so great, you know? Oh, right. So you, and you'd get it. Hey, you know, uh, guys didn't sound so great on the... Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, it was our first real uh, experiences with, with all due respect, unions. Mm. You know, you can't, t- you can't touch anything at those uh, networks. You can't touch this mic. You can't move uh, any equipment. Right. Uh, you'll get uh, really reprimanded. You got to call the guy. The guy's going to come over and adjust your stool, you know, wow. or your chair or, or your or mic. That's that was the first time of that. Second of all, the sound was really well. If you look at at, at, at a television screen, and especially in those days, you notice the size of the speaker is what one one hundredth sure. right. of the screen, and that's unfortunately how it was. Not a lot of bass yeah. response in that. Yeah, it was just like, you know, this little toy. I mean, yeah. it's still like that. I mean, if you buy a monitor today, you know, you better get some speakers, you know? Right. So that aspect of it was, was, was difficult. If, as you say, from a musician's point of view, you know, I mean, later years, you know, when Paul Schaefer and those guys, you know, and Donnie Kirshner, Donnie Kirshner was the first one. You remember that show? Sure. That? He had a, a whole uh, a recording studio there for you to play into. So by the time you went on the air, you sounded good. That's but prior cool. to that, really not. The only other person I remember that really paid attention to sound was Bill Graham on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, his places, the Fillmore, they sounded and they looked great because he was aware, you know, of the marriage between the music and the uh, and the so-called live and that's, that's it. great. But as far as those shows were concerned, um, uh, they, they were kind of interesting. But, you know, I don't think really they were that much different than they are now. I mean, they, the only that you realize... They don't give a damn about this music. <laughs> well, the kids in yeah. the audience sure as hell did. They right. care about the demographics and the people but coming the, to yeah. the show. The right. advertisers. We, we knew there's, that. There's a famous uh, clip of uh, Dean Martin on the Hollywood Palace oh. after he introduces the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. And at the end of their performance, he, Dean is rolling his eyes. The camera comes back on him. He goes, gee, weren't they great? And yeah. he's like obviously being sarcastic as if they were so many worlds apart. Rolling Stones, aren't they great? <laughs> We're going to leave right after the show for London. They're challenging the Beatles to a hair pulling contest. I, think. <laughs> I could swear Jackie Coogan and Skippy were in that group. <laughs> I want to take a point of personal privilege here. Um, when I was eight years old, I was just discovering rock and roll, and I'm, I'm 50 now, so it was around 79, 80. And what I listened to Top 40 Radio religiously, and one of my favorite songs was Only a Lonely Hot Seas. I think that oh, is yeah. vastly underrated, yeah. and I think that is just a beautiful song. And Thank you. 
I didn't know what a rascal was back then, but I knew what Felix <laughs> Cavallari was, yeah, yeah. and I just love that tune. Wow. I just wanted well, to say that. Know, that was the uh, era of the Bee Gees, you know, so that was kind of like my, you know, kind of tribute to what was going on with all that stuff that they were doing with the real high voice there and, and all that, you know, and uh, again, you know, I, I, I love making music, sure. you know, and, and, and I think that's what people really feel when they hear you know I, to me to be able to create new songs new tunes and to have these monstrous talented people play it play on it is kind of a joy you know well felix you've been more than generous with your time and i just want to ask you one last question i like to throw this at people once in a while <laughs> worst gig best gig well i'll tell you the worst gig we ever had but it was funny because we were working with neil diamond and i don't know we were in one of the southern states and literally no one came. Mm. Zero. Nobody was in the audience. No, there was nobody. It was so we, we found out years later it might have been one of those things where these people want to lose money for taxes. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the best gig out there's so many that, you know, it's hard to say. I, I I'll say right off the top of my head, we did one at uh, the old Madison Square Garden, uh, right after uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated for Atlantic Records. Yes. And uh, we were on the stage with uh, Sam and Dave, uh, Sonny and Cher. I think Aretha did a cameo. It's one of the last times I saw uh, mm -hmm. Jimi Jimi Hendrix. Uh, that was a special night. All the world of a
Yes, people got to be free by the rascals. Oh my God! Uh, he's he's so great. Yeah. Um, it's funny um, when one of his people, when I first met Felix, uh, he said, "Hey, if you get a chance to talk to him," he said, "You know that uh, peace, love, brotherhood, understanding thing that you know so many of their songs were about. That's really him. He's really that guy." And as luck would have it, after the show. There was kind of a meet and greet, and Felix signed a lot of autographs and shook a lot of hands. And as it wound down, he and I got to talk, and I said, you know, just kind of made the easy-to-make observation that, you know, when you hear a song like People Gotta Be Free, it just it takes me back to a time. But, boy, those, those lessons that it teaches us are as relevant today. And he just started talking about, you know, we need to be together. We need to, to understand each other. we got to bring the races together. we got to bring people together. And, and, and it was from the heart. And right. it isn't, you know, there was no microphones or cameras around here. And I were having a private conversation. Yeah, I'll never forget it because it's it's who he is. I think I think we could have talked for another two hours if he, oh, he would have let us. Easy. You know, and I'm sorry, but Ringo with his peace and love, peace and love. <laughs> but don't write me and don't ask for autographs because I'm I've had it with that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you made that joke with Felix about you know that yeah. car out there, but that's how I feel about a lot of artists. I mean, my God, I've bought every Beatle record four times. Yeah, and if they re-release it, I'll buy it again. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we don't understand the pressures they're under. I can see it getting real old real fast, being bothered in a restaurant when you're trying to have a meal, and some kid goes, oh, you know, can I have your autograph or whatever. I can see that being annoying, but don't let that be the face of your product. Well, it's, 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 it's funny that you say that, and I'll go back and, and take what you've just said, Don, and bring a little anecdote that came from Fall River Celebrates America. Sure. And you opened for the group America. Mm-hmm. Um, that evening. Yeah. And I think it was 112 degrees. Yes. And we were anticipating terrible thunderstorms, which fortunately never materialized. Nevertheless, their tour bus arrived at the meadow. And picture, you know what that layout looks like. There's no one there. The stage is up. The sound crew is starting to show up and test things out and get things, you know, geared up. And off the bus walks um, Dewey Bunnell. And, it's, it's, you know, I'm, here's this guy standing in front of me. He's the guy that wrote Horse With No Name and, you know, sang so many hits. Ventura Highway. Go on and on and on. And he looks at the site of the Battleship Massachusetts and the Braga Bridge, and he goes, wow, that's amazing. And I live six minutes from there, so you kind of take it for granted when you're a local. Right. And he, he started to sort of survey the place and his crew started to come off the bus and they were talking to me and everybody was smiling and pleasant. And it was my encounter with the road crew and the stars of a national act that had albums produced by George Martin. I mean, you can go on and on about America. And I said, Dewey, everybody in your crew is so nice and so professional. And he looked at me and he said, if somebody's going to be wearing a golf shirt with my band's name on it, embroidered on it, they're going to be nice to people. There you go. Gonna work, or they're not going to work for us. That's great. 
That is what you want to hear from people that you admire. And I've told that story a lot to people because that's what you want to hear. You know, the horror stories about people being temperamental. I had more temperament from some of the local acts that we put on than I did from the national acts. Yeah, I've been meaning to apologize for that, Mike. I was having a bad day. I told you I want my tea hot. Yeah, and you you wanted the the green M&Ms. Right, exactly, exactly. But I, I, I shouldn't have slapped you in front of your wife. I'm sorry. Well, that's all right. She got a kick out of it, and uh, if only there had been a camera, I know, it would have been. But, but that's that's my response to your comment about you know the the, the temperamental artists, and and I, I can forgive Ringo for the and you kind of nudged up against this explanation that you know how do you be Ringo and go anywhere and lead try to lead a normal life you know you got to kind of cloister yourself away when you think you could go to any country in the world and people would immediately point to you and know who you are you know I'm sure that Paul McCartney walks down the street there are people who see him and they burst into tears yeah well, because his impact on their lives is so profound that you know and 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 do you get used to that? Do you brush it off? Do you embrace it? I don't know. And let us also not forget that one of the last acts of John Lennon's life was signing an autograph. Signing an autograph. You know, uh, that cannot be lost on them either. Um, True. Do you remember where you were when you heard John Lennon had been killed? Uh, yeah, I was living in New Bedford at the time, and I got a phone call from a friend who said uh, very flippantly, your Beatles records are going to increase in value very quickly. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, um, John Lennon was just shot, and they, they, they're saying that he died. And it was paralyzing to hear that news. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had listened all my life to a lot of different styles of music. I remember uh, watching Frank Sinatra at the Providence Civic Center with my wife and thinking the last time we were in this building was to see talking heads. So I'm kind of all over the place. Sure. But the, but the default setting had always been the Beatles. I could go a month and listen to nothing but John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and Charles Mingus. But then somebody says, hey, um, put on Abbey Road. Oh, great. Side two. Right. You know. And you're not going to listen to it every day, <laughs> the whole thing. But. It's but there. It's, always, it's there. always there. It's always there because it's a part of your life. I remember watching the Ed Sullivan performance on a 13-inch black and white TV. Wow. I know this sounds like log cabin stories no. to you. but No. Um, Actually, it doesn't. It's more like being a witness to history is what it is to me. Yeah. Um, all my friends out there are rolling their eyes right now. Oh, he's going to tell the story <laughs> again. But my whole life changed in 1979 at the tender age of eight when I picked up a Beatles album. Didn't have any frame of reference for how big they were. I heard the name, but you know, when you're a kid, it's, you, do you know, know which one it was. Yes, I do. Beatles 65. Wow. So I'm looking at them. They looked odd to me. Um, I put on, I heard no reply. <laughs> Babies in black. I'm a loser. Yeah. And I just, I, I asked questions, you know, again, this is late seventies. They're not exactly top of the charts and they're, right. they're not, they're not right. part of the culture at the time. It was a real disco era, you know? I think I had a Kiss poster on my wall at the time. I also had a Disco Sucks poster, so I was a little bit cool. <laughs> you always were. I, when I think of a little bit cool, Don, I think of you immediately. Exactly. Very little. Yeah. From there, it snowballed. Got the Magical Mystery Tour album. and About a year, I had every record. I had read a bunch of books on them. So I was that weird little kid in school wearing a Beatles t-shirt. Yeah. So when 1980, now I'd been a fan for a year and a half at that point. I was all excited about Double Fantasy coming out, the whole thing. I had articles that I cut out. My grandmother used to read The Inquirer. So 
<laughs> in August of 80, there was a picture of John and Yoko, and it said, John Lennon coming out of seclusion. I was, I was really excited. And so, you know, when you're a kid, you know, some kids like Luke Skywalker and Superman right. or whatever, they don't die. When you're, when you're that young and a, and a hero of yours is killed, it's all over the TV. It was very rare to see a Beatle on TV. If I saw something, you know, when Paul got arrested, yeah. that made the news. So, that made the news. Um, the emotion when you're a kid, you don't know what it is. It must be like how some people felt when Kennedy was murdered. Um, so that stuck with me and it stayed with me. Um, my my parents were very tolerant and encouraging of music, even though they didn't like a lot of the stuff that my brother and I listened to. And my sister, who was younger, came along long thereafter. Um, but when my father heard uh, on the uh, Meet the Beatles album, which those American, we could talk for a long time about those American releases and how uh, inferior they were to the British originals but dave anyway. dexter jr putting all that reverb all over it uh mm -hmm. when my father heard them do um till there was you you know now there's a very user-friendly song to, to play for your parents sure you know? and to to his last days and my dad lived to be 90 he would refer to it as that rumba there ah, that, that, yeah, rum, that rumba there yep. to him it was a rumba and you know you think of the latin rhythm of uh, of the way they had arranged and performed that and I said, see, Dad, they, they write a lot of their own, most, mostly write their own songs, but they're pretty cool musicians and singers. And he said, absolutely. And, and you know, in, in my household on Sunday, on the hi-fi, as we called it, mm -hmm. it was Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Count Basie. My right. dad was kind of hip in the music from his era. And, you know, we shared a lot of that. Uh, he taught me three chords on the guitar when I was a kid. And... Uh, both my parents instilled in us a love of music, even though we were listening to Jimi Hendrix Experience and Cream sure. and The Who and, and other things. They didn't quite get it, but no. they encouraged it, and I'm glad they did. And how sad for kids today that don't have a modern hero, a modern Beatles, something to inspire them. It's, it's, I mean, it's out there, I guess, if you look for it hard enough, but it's, it's, it's not omnipresent. It's not part of the... What do they call that zeitgeist of the yeah you know yeah. see people don't people don't realize Don and maybe and you get it now even though you weren't there when it was happening when a new Beatles album came out it was an event of course most particularly starting with Revolver mm -hmm. and when Revolver came out it was like did you get it did you get it yet did you get it kids were on the phone and knocking on the doors of their neighbors uh, homes. Mm. To ask their friends, did you get it? Yeah, I got it. I mean, when Rubber Soul came out, I bought it for my brother for Christmas. He bought it for me for Christmas. So we gave one copy away to a cousin that didn't get it for Christmas. You know, that kind <laughs> That's of thing. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, when Sergeant Pepper came out, the whole world turned upside down. And, I, you know, younger people may say, you know, hey, Gramps, you know, you're exaggerating. No. I'm really not. <laughs> and if you really want to put it in perspective... Because I'd have, you know, when I was young, I, I was always preaching the Beatles to my friends. And they'd say, well, you know, now I like Iron Maiden. Well, okay, you're comparing two different eras entirely. If you want to know how amazing the Beatles were and how ahead of their time was, look up the charts of what else was on the radio. Right. And it right, made right. their music all the more special. Uh, you know, if, if you're listening to it from a classic rock point of view, you can say, well, I like Led Zeppelin better. I like that. But there was no Led Zeppelin then. These right. guys were writing the template for what a rock band was. Not pop, but rock band. 
Sure. And I think if you, my God, you listen to the charts um, with few exceptions. I mean, I think the Beach Boys gave them a run for their money. They sure did. Um, never caught up entirely, but boy, good vibrations certainly must have uh, a shook a lot of people. You know, it's a masterpiece, masterpiece. exactly. And if folks haven't seen the movie The Wrecking Crew, oh. please, please watch it. Yeah. Please watch it because yeah. you'll learn about those great session players that worked behind uh, the Beach Boys and so many of the Phil Spector artists, and 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 they are tremendous. So I appreciated what Felix, you know, said about their autonomy in producing their own sure. records with uh, Ari Mardine, and you know, I, it's why I wanted to talk to Felix about how can I be sure because that's such an unusual record and unusually arranged as a pop song. Yet it's it's a masterpiece. Well- as we come towards the end of the show, I did want to touch upon something else, which he mentioned that WABC or whatever station, they had to play the new Beatles song. They didn't sit back and go, well, let's see if it fits in with a format. Is it AOR? Is it, uh, is it you know, rock? Is it No, you just played it because it was new. It was music. Today, certainly even 20 years ago, uh, the formatting of radio, the rigidity of what DJs were allowed to play, helped kill rock and roll or at least well, kill the creativity now i don't know i want to know if you want to be referred to as a disc jockey more of an on personality talk show host but talk to me about radio well i i, I kind of came into radio at the end of the era when disc jockeys had a lot more discretion in terms of what they played yes there were um the bigger market stations that were much more rigid with their playlists and um it was often pre-programmed for them, but there was a time earlier than that in the in the early '60s to the mid, and maybe to the late '60s, where disc jockeys would say, "I really like this song. I'm going to play it again next hour," and that's unheard of now mm-hmm. um, because there's there's too much money at stake, and there's there's too much precision and fine tuning of the product, being the product being that frequency and the music that's heard on it you know and then you got into these uh, satellite stations which were broadcast on am and fm and you know you're listening to your local frequency in providence and you're hearing some guy who's in los angeles saying it's 12 past the hour (laughs) they don't want to say the hour the hour of six the hour of two right (laughs) because it could be anywhere they're they're syndicated and they could be in in every time zone you know, so this, I enjoyed the business and, and I was in it in a very, very small way. I was a very small fish in a very small pond. People would say, well, you know, you got to be a radio personality. And I would usually answer that, well, you cannot be what you do not have. I had no personality, so I couldn't be a personality. That's not but, true. But I did enjoy, you know, the chance to uh, communicate with people that way. Sure. I did I did play records in the early part of my career, and we literally played records on yeah. the turntables. I was going to say, in the concept of, <laughs> of DJs flipping and playing the B-side, right. you know, uh, there came a point where you just couldn't do that anymore because that's not the record that the station wants promoted. Again, my fear with this podcast is that I'm, it's going to be, it's only an old grumpy man <laughs> lamenting what used to be, you know? And I don't want to be that guy. But Or why don't you just call it, hey, you kids, get off my lawn. Excellent. That, wouldn't that be a good idea? And you're not getting your ball back. <laughs> well, Mike, it's been great. I really appreciate you doing this. And talking to Felix Cavalieri was a blast. And I hope you come back and do it again sometime. Well, if you invite me, I'll say yes. Uh, well, that's one not going to happen. Things- so. <laughs> oh, I'll just barge in. Yeah, one of the- 
on, on a sincere note, and I want to say, man, you're a groovy cat. Um, one of the things that's been great about arranging this with Felix and through my connections with his folks uh, is is that um, it got a chance for you and I to reconnect in yes. a way that is not just social media and a few a few sentences back and forth, but we had some nice phone conversations, and I hope that uh, that continues. Absolutely. Don't get offended if I change my number. Again? <laughs> if you want to visit us on our homepage, www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com. We're on Facebook at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. And wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. I hope to see you again next week on It's Only Rock and Roll. Peace and love, Don. <laughs>